0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We're looking this morning at verses 23 through 32. So, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. Just to survey the landscape a little bit, where we are in Matthew. Uh, Jesus has come into the city, as we've seen with the triumphal entry, the the final week of his life prior to his crucifixion, and we enter into a section here from uh, chapter 21-23 where we are now through chapter 22 of verbal jousting, sparring with all comers there in the temple precincts, those coming to Jesus with questions to test him. And Jesus with a question or two of his own. And then in chapters 23 and 24, uh, Jesus is with his disciples. And he has that uh, chapter of the the pronouncement of woes on the scribes and Pharisees, his lament over Jerusalem. Chapter 24, uh, known as the Olivet Discourse, uh, that, that uh, talk that Jesus gave to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and then through chapters 25, 26, uh, with 26, we really come into um, the events leading up to Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and then his resurrection, and then, of course, ending with his resurrection and the Great Commission. So that's where we are in Matthew. This morning, we're looking uh, in more detail at, at verses 23 through 32. So hear the word of God. From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Open our eyes, O God, to your word, to see its truth, to understand it, Father, not merely with intellectual agreement with what it says, but with life-changing impact in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The chief priests and the elders were men of authority. They were used to others jumping when they said jump. They were used to others answering to them, yes, sir. That may be one reason that Jesus bothered them as much as he did. Because Jesus didn't seem to defer to them. Jesus didn't seem to kowtow to them like, the rest of men. In fact, Jesus seemed in himself to possess an innate authority greater than that claimed by the chief priests and the elders. And so they felt threatened by Jesus, threatened by his teaching and the crowds that he drew, threatened by the power he showed and the miracles that he performed, threatened by his coming in and and cleansing out the temple the way That he did. And so, as Jesus is teaching here, they approach him and they interrupt him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus recognized this for what it was not a question seeking information, but a challenge to intimidate him to bully him into silence. Now, that question set off an exchange here in our passage that we're looking at today between Jesus and these Jewish leaders, uh, a dialogue that uh, was uh, started by their question about authority and Jesus' answer and uh, what he has to say to them here. It raises a question for us today as well, this whole question of Jesus' authority. The source of his authority. And that question is, do you, here today, recognize Jesus' authority in your own life? Now, I'm assuming uh, that every one of you does. That you acknowledge the authority of Jesus, uh, at least in our heads. But do you acknowledge his authority in your heart? Do you acknowledge his authority in your life? Does the authority of Jesus make a difference in the way that you lived last week? Does the authority of Jesus affect you so that it will change the way that you live and affect the way that you live this week? You know, we say yes. We may give the right answer to that question, Jesus' authority, the Sunday school answer that we know we're supposed to say, but maybe... Quietly, maybe in ways you don't even notice, your heart may be saying, By what authority, Jesus, do you tell me to do anything? In fact, that's true every time we sin, challenging Jesus' authority. How can you know? How can you truly know if you acknowledge Jesus' authority? Really? In your life. Well, as we look at this passage, I want us to examine it in terms of three tests that seem to flow out of this passage that Jesus gives us here. Test number one, we acknowledge Jesus' authority in our hearts when we follow him as the conviction of our hearts. When we follow him as the conviction, a deep-seated, profound, life-changing conviction of our own hearts. Not just a passing fancy, not just the ecclesiastically correct, the Sunday school correct answer, but the rock-solid conviction of our hearts. Because as we see here, if there's anything that chief priests and elders were lacking, it was the courage of their convictions. By what authority, Jesus? Well, Jesus replies to their question with a question uh, in verses 24 and 25. He says, I will also ask you a question if you tell me the answer then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from heaven, or was it from man? Now, these men were used to asking questions, not answering them, not being questioned by others. And it says something about the authority of Jesus, that they recognized, perhaps only on a subconscious level, that they didn't rebuke him. That they began to think about, and discuss among themselves the answer to this question that Jesus asked them. It's like a a team playing trivial pursuit. They sort of huddle up, try to come consensus on what their answer is. But of course, the answer is anything but trivial. Matthew lets us listen in on their deliberations here as they come up with an answer for Jesus. Well, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say to us, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe John if you say his ministry is from heaven? But if we say from man, well, you know, all the people think John was a prophet. And what are they going to think of us if we come out and say, well, it was not he wasn't a prophet. His, his ministry was just something he came up with himself. No heavenly authority to it whatsoever. Uh, we fear the people. And what would they think of us? This is pathetic, really. I mean, as you listen to this, these shadows of men... Always calculating the outcome, always weighing this and that, afraid to stand up and state plainly what they believe for fear of the consequences. You see, Jesus knew them well. He knew exactly what he was doing here. He knew he was tossing them right on the horns of a dilemma. Either way they answer, they lose. If they answer one way, they have to acknowledge their own inconsistency. The baptism, that is the ministry of John, was from heaven, but they didn't believe him. If they answer the other way, then they face the scorn of the crowds who happened to believe that John was, in fact, practicing a ministry that was heaven sent. Well, time's up. Answer, please. We don't know. They mumbled. Best they can do. We don't know. Won't answer the question. We know if you are playing Trivial Pursuit, We don't know is an acceptable answer. But when the question has to do with who Jesus is and the nature of his ministry and the nature of his authority, we don't know, I don't know, is not good enough. Jesus does not allow fence sitters. He forces us to come down one side or the other. And in the lack of their unwillingness to give an answer, to commit themselves, Jesus will not honor their refusal. And so he says, Neither will I tell you uh, by what authority I do these things. there's a principle there uh, that their, their refusal to receive the revelation they had been given, their rejection of what light they had already been given, uh, cut off the prospect of additional light until they acted on the revelation God had already given. He would not honor their unbelief with more. But was Jesus just dodging their question? It was Jesus just evading a question that they came with. Well, it's true. He didn't answer it directly, and he refused to give them a direct answer, but he did hint at the answer here. It is an answer written between the lines here, because it was John the Baptist, after all, who pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. If John was a heaven-sent prophet, if his message and ministry were true, then Jesus was the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah. But Jesus was testing them. What did you think of John? What did you think of the forerunner, the Elijah who was to come, whom Malachi spoke of? Because if they receive John's authority, then Jesus' authority is plain enough. But if they reject John, then Jesus could say, my authority is heaven sent, and they would reject him just like they Rejected his forerunner. They were afraid to commit themselves, on the one hand, for appearing to be inconsistent, on the other hand, for fear of the crowds. Do you live your life by the opinions of others? What a bleak existence. Always worrying about what somebody's going to think. You know, if I do this, you know my friends might uh, think I'm a fool. If I do this, this may happen. If I do that, that may happen. Do you live by the opinions of others? Are you afraid of what others might think? Does your loyalty to Jesus depend on who you're with at the moment? Do you wet your fingers, see which way the wind's blowing before you commit yourself? Then you're no better than these wimpy priests and elders. And you don't have a clue, and certainly not a conviction, about Jesus' authority, about who he really is, at least not deep in your hearts. And like these men, you lack the courage of whatever conviction you may have. You see, we've got to stop calculating outcomes. What do you believe? Do you believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true? Do you believe that he was crucified? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead on the third day? Do you believe that he is the king of kings? That he is the Lord of lords? What do you believe? What is the conviction of your heart? If he is who he claims to be, then follow him. If he's worth serving at all, he's worth serving with all. And if you really don't think him worth a wholehearted commitment, I'm not talking about what you say. I'm talking about what you do. I'm talking about where your heart is. If you really do not think Him worth a wholehearted commitment, worth the investment of all that you are, then go do something else. Why squander a perfectly beautiful spring morning sitting in here? If Jesus is not worth all, He's worth nothing. Be half-hearted, be consistent. If he is who you say he is, then follow him. Serve him. If he's not, then go find your life somewhere else. After all, it was Jesus who said in Revelation 3 to his church, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you're lukewarm, you're nauseating, and Jesus is going to spit you out. So either follow him, follow him with everything you have, everything you are, all the commitment of your heart, or go do something else. Because you see, we acknowledge Jesus' authority in our hearts when we follow him with the conviction of our hearts. There's a second test that we find here. Test number two. We acknowledge Jesus' authority in our hearts when we move beyond God talk to genuine discipleship. When we move beyond God talk to genuine discipleship. Now, after declining their answer uh, to answer their question, at least directly there in verse uh, 27, Jesus tells them a parable to illustrate their position. He begins, what do you think? Uh, You can almost see the expression of contempt on their face when Jesus says, I won't tell you. By what authority? You know, you almost see them responding to the look on their face. What do you think? And he tells them this, this, this very simple parable about a man who had two sons. And he says to the first one, uh, go work in the vineyard. he got a job for you today, son. Go work in the vineyard. And the boy says, no, I won't do it. But then later has a change of heart, changes his mind, and goes out and begins working in the field. Then he comes to his second son and says, son, need you to go work in the field today. And the son says, yes, sir, I'll do it. And then he goes wandering off, finds something else to do, and, and does not do what his father said. And so Jesus turns around and said, which of these two young men did the will of their father? And uh, the chief priests, the, the elders answer, well, the first one. The one who actually went and did the will of his father. You see, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, were that first son. By their dishonesty, by their immoral lifestyles, they were saying no to God. No to his law. No to his will. But under the preaching of John, they later repented. They believed the gospel. They followed Jesus. Now, the chief priests and the elders... Scribes and the Pharisees uh, all said yes to God. Yes, sir, at least with their mouths. But you see, when the prophet of God, John, came, they rejected him. They didn't believe. They didn't repent. And they certainly rejected Jesus as well, disobeying the will of God that we believe in and follow Jesus. You see, the tax collectors... The prostitutes didn't have the talk. They didn't have the religiosity. But when the truth came in the, in the person of John and then in the person of Jesus, they believed, they followed, they did the will of their father. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. But you see, the, 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 the chief priests, the elders, they could talk religion all day long. But when it came right down to it, Jesus came, John came, they rejected them. Saw them as impostors. And how that statement of Jesus must have galled them. The tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That would have been offensive. To say something like that. Just the thought would have just offended them, incensed them highly. But it was true. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, their lives were a mess. They said no to God a lot. But when Jesus came, they knew they needed a Savior. They knew they had no righteousness. So they heard John. They repented. They heard Jesus. They believed in him. They followed him with their lives. You see, the true elements of genuine biblical discipleship faith in Christ that leads to obedience to Christ. Now, we don't get those confused. Faith comes first. Faith in Christ, faith in his atonement, faith in his obedience for us. But then having been changed by him, forgiven by him, then comes the fruit of genuine faith, which is obedience. Like James says, faith without works is dead. Well, the chief priests, the elders could talk about God. They could talk about his law. And so everybody assumed that they knew God. But they didn't. Their hearts were proud. Their hearts were self-sufficient. They didn't see any need for an outside righteousness, an alien righteousness, to be given to them by God. But they needed it. They needed it. Just as much as the tax collectors and the prostitutes needed it, they just did not see their need of it. They couldn't see it. God talk is easy. especially easy for those who, like me, like many of you, have grown up in the church. We know the words. We know the vocabulary. We know the right answers. The danger is that words and answers may be all that you have. Not Jesus. Just talk. Let me remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Talk is cheap. You can talk about Jesus without ever having experienced his power to change your life, without ever having experienced the freeing wonder of his forgiveness. And being forgiven much, you love him much. You can talk but do you see the power of the gospel in your life? It's very dangerous to talk and yet maybe secretly have a life or seen only to others have a life that very much contradicts what we say with our lips. Paul wrote about this in Romans 2. He said, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal there's something perverse about human nature that we tend to attack other people, especially at that point where we ourselves struggle, where we ourselves are weak. We tend to be very, uh, judgmental toward others about the very things we tolerate in ourselves. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And he goes on to say, therefore, the the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it still is. The biggest charge you'll find among non-Christians against Christians is hypocrisy. And too often it's written large on the national media when you have some prominent figure who preaches against adultery or preaches against stealing or preaches against idolatry and is guilty of those very things. Talk is easy. Talk is cheap. The power of Christ is something different altogether. Well, maybe you've been pretty good, morally speaking. Sometimes it's hard to feel your need of a Savior when you really think you're doing pretty well, when you know the answers, when you agree with the Bible and you confuse that with knowing the gospel, have experienced the gospel. Christ. Well, may God open our eyes to see just how foul our hearts really are before him. May he see just a little bit how even our best works are like bloody, filthy rags tainted through and through with sin. May he silence our mouths with your glib, easy, quick answers. Well, we do want to talk about God to be sure. God talk is good when it's coming from a heart that knows God, that loves Christ, but it's bad when it is a screen that hides a hardened, unbelieving heart. So we acknowledge Jesus' authority when we follow him as the conviction of our hearts, when we move beyond just talk to genuine discipleship. But test number three we also find here, we acknowledge Jesus' authority when we recognize his power to cleanse and change sinners. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Does he do it? Well, we acknowledge his authority when we recognize that power. You know, it's interesting when you come to verse 32, the end of the verse, second half of the verse there, that Jesus reminds the chief priests, the elders, that while they rejected John's ministry, others received it and benefited by it. John came to you in the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So who responded to John? Those people who knew they had no righteousness. Those people who knew they had nothing to offer God, and yet they responded. They went forward and repented. They experienced his baptism as an expression of the cleansing of their hearts. And as Jesus said, they entered the kingdom of God, not by works, but by God's grace. They received pardon and cleansing and righteousness that God provided to them, the one to whom John pointed. And afterward, they were different. They didn't enter the kingdom of God only to go on living in dishonesty, the tax collectors, only to go on living in immorality, the prostitutes. Their lives were changed. They were different. They'd experienced the transforming power of God. Remember Zacchaeus, tax collector. Jesus had just encountered him as he was coming through Jericho. and remember Zacchaeus said, Lord, you know, I, I restore to, if, to any I have taken from I, I'll pay four times as much in restitution. And Jesus said, surely salvation has come to this house. This man is a son of Abraham. Not just his words, but his actions. His willingness to make it right. His willingness to change. And if Zacchaeus remained in the employment of Rome as a tax collector, he did it as an honest man gathering no more than what Rome required, which was considerable enough. Well, for some people, like these priests and elders, their own righteousness gets in the way. They just don't see their need of it. But others are overwhelmed by a sense of sin. They don't think God could ever forgive them for what they've done. You know, part of the problem is our righteousness gets in the way, but there are people who have... No sense of righteousness. They only have an overwhelming sense of their sin. And they think, how could God possibly forgive me for what I have done? You ever stolen money from somebody? The Lord forgave tax collectors. You ever worked in prostitution? The Lord forgave prostitutes. There's no sin you've committed that is so evil that God will not forgive it in Christ. There may be dire consequences in this world, but there is no sin so evil that God cannot forgive you and will not forgive you if you genuinely repent and trust in Christ. There's no sin you've committed so often that God will not forgive you in Christ. There is no sin so deeply ingrained in you that God can't break its power over you and set you free in Christ. The irony here is that the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the obvious sinners, entered the kingdom ahead of the priests and the elders, the religious people, the leaders. But what about them? They rejected John, even as other people were coming into the kingdom through John. What about them? Look at verse 32, again, the end of the verse. Even when you saw it, even when you saw these people coming into the kingdom, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe it. You see, they had a second chance. They heard John and rejected him, but they also saw what happened in the lives of others who heard John and repented. Their lives were changed. Tax collectors went honest. Prostitutes became faithful wives. It's the power of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral And, and the, the the elders and the priests were seeing this happen before their eyes as people with a great sense of sin went to, the, to John and later went to Jesus. Well John, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus says something similar in John chapter 10. He says, "If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works." That you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In, In essence, Jesus is saying, if my words do not persuade you, let my works persuade you of who I am. Look at the fruit of my ministry. Look at the fruit of changed lives, of bodies healed, of the lost redeemed. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here about John's ministry. You didn't believe John's words, you rejected his preaching... And even when you saw the transformed lives of those who believed Him, you still would change your mind and believe. They rejected the words. They rejected the works. There are people who have rejected the gospel time and again. But God, in His amazing grace, allows us to change our minds. Allows us. Maybe we've rejected the preaching of the gospel, but He allows us to see the works of the gospel and to change our minds to come back and say, "Yes, Lord, You really are doing something here." You see, we believe the, the gospel because we hear the Word of God, but then the Spirit uses that Word. But we also believe the gospel when we see what it does. In the lives of people we know. What it's done in my life. What it's done in your life. What it's done in the lives of those around you. Now our lives are not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. But our lives do serve to reinforce the reality of the gospel. As they are changed by the power of God in Christ. And so we acknowledge the authority of Jesus. When we acknowledge The power of the gospel to change and transform hearts delivers us from the guilt and power of sin, delivered us from the fear of God and his judgment, and has reconciled us to the God that we were made to know. The God apart from whom nothing is as it should be. We recognize the authority of Jesus when we recognize its power to change us and to change others. We have that on good authority. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that we would fully and completely bow to the authority of Christ, to recognize his authority, to not be challenging it. And yet, Lord, we know when we sin, when we're tempted to sin, we're raising questions about your authority. Even as it was in the garden, did God really say, God knows. Well, Lord, we believe your word. We believe your authority. Because, Father, the Holy Spirit testifies to us that your word is true. We believe your words. Father, we also believe because of your works. We believe because from the day of Jesus until now, and around the world today, in our own families and in our church, lives are being changed by God. The gospel. Father, I pray that you would spare any of us having a heart, skeptical, hardened, unbelieving, blind, like the chief priests and elders. Lord, like those tax collectors, like those prostitutes, to have a deep recognition of our sin, but also a deep recognition of your grace in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.